Hello, I'm James Hurst, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, a damning report shines a light on the bullying, harassment and more facing many women in the armed forces. This is the time to embrace it and do something bold. Don't tinker, because tinkering is what's gone on over 20 years. MPs demand action. We'll ask a defence minister what they're going to do. Plus, the US ends combat operations in Iraq. Again, is this time a genuine full stop? And as the carrier strike group reaches the South China Sea, what does our biggest ally make of it all? If, for example, we focus a bit more here, are there areas that the UK can be more helpful in other parts of the world? Time and again, leaders in defence have promised to tackle the problems that face many women who serve in the UK's armed forces. But this week, a damning report warned that female personnel still aren't being protected. MPs on a defence subcommittee warned that instead they're thrown into what's described as a man's world and just expected to fit in. For some, it means bullying, harassment and discrimination. For others, serious sexual offences which often go unpunished. We'll put those allegations to a defence minister a little later. But first to our reporter Rosie Layden who's been looking at the MPs' findings and trying to outline the main points. Well, really, it's hard to know where to start. There's so much in this report. But the committee described hearing many horror stories, saying some of the evidence was truly shocking. They heard from more than 4,000 women, including nearly one in 10 of those currently serving in the forces. 62% of these respondents said they experienced bullying, harassment or discrimination, including some allegations of very serious sexual offences. I spoke to Sarah Atherton, who led the committee behind this report and is herself an army veteran. She told me even if women complain, often very little is done. We have evidence of chains of command being perpetrators, colluding, suppressing evidence, sharing evidence, breaching confidentiality, poor uh, level of standard of assisting officers, legal teams. But the problem is that, you know, women on a unit cannot escape. They are there. They are facing their alleged perpetrators. They are facing their officers, chain of command, colleagues, peers. When you're talking about rape and serious sexual offence, how widespread did it appear to be? From the evidence we received, it's quite extensive. Uh, And we've got to remember that six out of ten women said that they wouldn't make a complaint because of the repercussions of making that complaint on their careers and their lives. So we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. So I suspect that it's it's a lot more of an endemic problem within the military. A lot of women said, look, we know that this has happened to me. It was bad. But actually what was worse was taking that complaint forward through the military system. Uh, and we had countless reports of chains of command, uh, commanding officers turning around and saying, well, you were drunk. You were acting provocatively. Uh, go away and think about it. Do you really want to do this? And of course, to some degree, that officer's promotional prospects are measured against the discipline and the complaints within his unit. So it's in he, he's marking his own homework to a certain extent, where bullying, harassment, discrimination, serious sexual assault, and any sexual assault and rape is concerned. We're suggesting that the chain of command is removed from that, and those complaints are dealt with 
uh, with a central defence authority which does not sit within the single service. And all rape, sexual assault cases should be heard within a civilian court because you're less likely to get a conviction in a military court. You're four to six times less likely to get a conviction in the military courts than you are in the civilian system. In terms of the complaint system, you're recommending that the Ombudsman's advice should be binding at the moment it's advisory. Well, we spoke to the Ombudsman, um, the previous Ombudsman and the current Ombudsman. The Ombudsman has got its own problems, but they are as independent as we're going to get at the moment. But the Secretary of State can overrule anything that the Ombudsman says. Now, that's not giving faith in a system that's broken. And we need to start giving faith. There needs to be transparency. There needs to be some level of justice equality uh, that we're not seeing at the moment. Because at the end of it, it's about morale. It's about operational effectiveness. And it's about retention. And it's about encouraging recruitment. It has to be seen to be working. These are big cultural changes that you're recommending. This is the opportunity. So to put your money where your mouth is, prove to service women they are our finest asset. This is the time to embrace it and do something bold. Don't tinker because tinkering is what's gone on over 20 years. So they've gone sort of halfway, they've dipped their toe in the water with this sort of easier things that quite frankly, they should have sorted out when all roles were open to women in 2018. Read the report, 9% of service women engaged with this. This is all the evidence they probably need to change something. I will keep pushing because our women deserve better. Sarah Atherton, who led this MP's inquiry into the experience of women in the armed forces. Back to Rosie Layden. Rosie, despite the findings of the report, most of the women responding said they would still recommend a career in the forces. You've been speaking to a woman who spent more than 30 years in the army. That's right. Former Lieutenant Colonel Diane Allen joined in 1982 and was one of the first women to go through Sandhurst. So she's really seen it all. She says she believed the armed forces were slowly getting used to women in the ranks and were improving. But as the years went by, she found herself passed over for promotion, the subject of unfounded complaints which dragged on for years and unable to speak out without damaging her career prospects. She wrote a book about her experience and since then she's become an advocate for service women who've approached her with their own stories. There was always this toxic cohort that you would come across who didn't agree with women, didn't agree with women in the services and would make it very clear they didn't agree with women in the services. It was changing and it was generally moving forward. So whilst it was moving forward I don't think I'd have raised an issue because you could see that slowly things were getting better. As time went on, you were yeah. getting more established. Yes. You were experienced. You were earmarked for promotion. Yeah. But that didn't happen. I really felt that the forces had dropped behind, that they were no longer in line with the problems of society. They were now still perhaps in the 1990s and they weren't really having an attitude where women were included. Because you're reserved now, so I'm part-time, which means I've got one foot in the civilian world and one foot in the military world, is you're seeing things slightly different. Uh, and you can say, well, hang on, when I'm over there, I'm treated this way, and I seem to have authority and leadership and get promoted. And when I'm over here in the military space, it's not happening like that. It's happening very differently, and you're saying, I don't have these skills. How does that work? <laughs> so I started to raise an issue that I thought um, perhaps there was a glass ceiling. And it, wasn't, it was a glass ceiling that was being broken in the civilian world, but perhaps not so much in the military world. And how did that go down? Very badly. <laughs> I don't think you could say it any differently. And this, 
This is where it's a, sort of there's an unwritten rule that you don't complain in the military. Then you experienced the military complaint system. Yes. How did that work for you? It's woeful. The system is woeful. And again, I, don't, um, I initially did it myself to see, and I believed in the system. I thought I would try it, only to find, and I'm happy to say it, that documents were lost, documents were deleted, interviews were not conducted. I think, is this just me? Or is this everyone else having this experience? And I realised the Ombudsman herself, the Service Complaints Ombudsman, was saying for the last six years, and is still saying the new one, that the system is woeful, that it is unfair, it's inappropriate and it's inefficient. And at that stage I started to talk to other people who were going through it again and found that everyone was experiencing the same common themes. Massive delays, inability to go to any kind of independent body, an ombudsman who could only come in at the end, and that end could be 15-20 months delayed. Why did you eventually decide that, much as you love the military, you yeah. still do, that you had to leave? The more I spoke to other people, the more I realised there was an inherent problem and there was the archaic systems were not actually keeping up to date with society and I still felt a responsibility to do something. So I tried to speak up in the system and was getting absolutely nowhere. So I just made the decision that to speak up I'd have to leave. In going public with your experience yeah. and um, the difficulties and obstacles which you'd encountered, other people came to you. I was fairly sure it wasn't a problem of the past, which is what I was being told by the military, and it was still an ongoing problem. I'd experienced it, and lots of other friends had told me they'd experienced it. There was like a ticker tape of stories came in, you know, 20 stories in an hour, another 10 stories the next hour, 10, 10 from women saying effectively, me too. The stories, the volume and the level of seriousness of the stories was truly shocking. Was there a feeling that it had been awful, but they'd been supported through it and things had been dealt with, or was that support lacking? Completely lacking. And that, I think, it's, it's the second crime. And to me, arguably as a military officer, it's the bigger crime. In that societies will always have a degree of toxic people. I'd love to say they don't, but they do. But what was happening is the common theme in nearly all these stories was when they reported it, it was ignored. Worse than that, it was not just brushed under the carpet, but some of them were reporting it being coerced to not report it. I think this report will hopefully be the hard-hitting report we need. That's step one. I think that will just be the start of reform. Former Lieutenant Colonel Diane Allen speaking to Rosie Layden. Certainly in the MP's report, there are lots of expressions of shock and surprise at what they heard in this inquiry. But what about inside the Ministry of Defence? Baroness Goldie is a Defence Minister. What's her reaction to the report? Some of the evidence that came out, particularly from perhaps slightly longer ago, was, was appalling, absolutely dreadful. And it, it was shocking to, to hear. And I am very grateful to the women, as I say, who had the courage to give that um, evidence. But I'm also very much aware that I hope they feel not only have they been given a voice, James, but that they have added value to the work of the committee. Having a voice is helpful, but I imagine what people really want to know is what you are going to do about things like 58% of women reporting being bullied, harassed or discriminated. And that's currently serving. And, and that is not acceptable and it's very disappointing. What I would say is that the report helpfully acknowledged that a lot of change has taken place. Now, that's positive, that's good. 
the pace of change is what we need to be looking at, because I think there is an acknowledgement that change is happening, but the pace is not quick enough. And the second thing I think we really have to look at in detail, I'm aware of a lot of things that have been happening, but Sarah Atherton very rightly pointed out, we may know that, but it's so confusing because so many things have been happening that an awful lot of other people don't. And I will be ensuring that we pull all this together so that it's in a much more coherent form, it's easily accessible, but also that we are far better at communicating, James. It's, it's, you know, it's not good enough that we do things unless we explain to our service personnel what it is we're doing. This is not just about a communication problem. You say things have changed. 64% of veterans reported experiencing bullying, harassment or discrimination, 58% of serving personnel. There is still a long way to go here. What action are you going to do beyond communication? We're already uh, looking at the complaint system. We've made improvements to that. We want them to find the system simple to use. But the one thing I would um, make a plea about is this. If anyone is the victim of unacceptable behaviour, please call it out. If you speak up and call it out, we can stamp it out. And if you complain, we'll support you. Women say they feel unsupported. Six out of ten said they just weren't prepared to take it to the chain of command. A third who did said it made the experience worse. And, And that is regrettable to hear. So isn't that what needs fixing here? not asking people to come forward? Well, I think it's twofold. Um, we, We have heard in the past of women who were reluctant to come forward because they didn't want to be thought to be troublemakers. Well, my reassurance to them is you're not troublemakers. By coming forward, you do the right thing. If somebody is present and witnesses someone else being the victim of unacceptable behavior, come forward and support them. But you're absolutely right, James, that we will look carefully at the Select Committee report. We we will look carefully at the recommendations and we'll certainly try and find ways in which we can build on um, the improvements which have, have been made. If we can look at the most significant issues, for women who experience sexual offences, they feel let down by the service justice system. Would you accept that it is failing them? Well, um, I would accept that many have had um, challenging experiences and many may feel that the service justice system failed to support them in the way that um, they would have hoped for. It's failing to get convictions, rape conviction rates within military courts are a quarter to a sixth of those in civilian courts. I think we've got to be be careful about how we use the the data. I mean, if you consider that in 2020, if we look at the civilian system, only 1.6 of rapes reported to the civilian police made it to court. Now, in fact, within the service justice system, 50% of those reported to military police uh, made it to the um, court. It may be referred to the police. Sarah Atherton told us only 16% of women who allege a sexual assault have any forensic medical examination. So it may be referred, but it it appears not to be being properly investigated. Well, I would dispute that. Um, The information I have is that the military police operate effectively when a case gets into the criminal court, whether that's in the civilian system 
or whether it's in the service justice system, it then is a matter for the court martial or the court to determine, and, and that really has to remain the province of the, of the court. Does it have to remain the province of military courts? Because repeatedly, the MOD has been recommended to take it out of the most serious sexual offences out of the military system, and repeatedly it's refused. Will it accept this time? Well, the service justice system was rigorously reviewed by Sean Lyons with the help of Sir John Murphy. And he recommended that the most serious sexual offences be put under the, under the civilian attorney general. They did, but they also said that they found the service justice system to be robust and fair. The Army's latest recruitment campaign announced just a few days ago, targeting women. It's called a soldier is a soldier. There's no such thing as the ladies' team. What's it like being a female soldier? I'm often asked. I wouldn't know, I answer. I am a soldier. Are you comfortable with these adverts when... 85% of serving women say they face additional challenges. 51% say they feel treated differently. We found after research that women were less likely than, than men to see themselves in a combat role. And so part of the campaign or the recruitment campaign is to reassure women, look, your place is one of parity. But the experience of women in the armed forces suggests for many that that is not where they feel their place is. That is what the situation that has sadly existed in the past, James, and no one's going to deny that. What I'm saying is that there has been visible and marked change. And if you speak to many women in the, in the military, they will, they will confirm that. All I'm saying is that we want an inclusive military. I think a lot of progress has been made towards that objective. But is there more to do? Of course there is more to do. Baroness Goldie, thank you. This is Zitrap. This month started with the US and other international forces effectively completing their withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the month ends with the US trying to bring an end to another of its forever wars. President Joe Biden confirmed the US is ending its combat operations in Iraq. He says local forces can defend the country on their own. Our role in Iraq is just to be available to continue to train, to assist, to help, and to deal with ISIS as it, as it arrives. But uh, we are not going to be by the end of the year in a combat mission. With us, the journalist Jonathan Marcus, former defence and diplomatic correspondent for the BBC. Jonathan, I, I, I can't even calculate how many times you've heard the end of US military action in Iraq before. Do you think it might actually be the end this time? No, I don't. Uh, I, I think it's very clear that what the Americans are trying to do here is achieve a, a rather delicate uh, balancing act. Uh, they want to maintain a useful presence in the country. Indeed, the Iraqi prime minister, many senior uh, Iraqi commanders uh, would still like some Americans to stay. Uh, but they want to do this at not too high a political cost. So both the Americans and the current Iraqi government are trying to tread this uh, very narrow line, keeping the American presence, but in some sense rebadging it, re uh, defining it, giving it a new label uh, in the hope uh, that they can uh, keep things on an even keel. I mean, one thing that is a bit different from 20, actually even 30 years ago, is the US was itching to use force, particularly in Iraq, to reshape the region. That is less 
a driving force for the US, certainly for, for some in the US now, isn't it? It is much less a driving force. And you're quite right. There is uh, clearly a huge reorientation, refocusing uh, of US uh, security and defence policy uh, away from conflicts uh, uh, that it's believed cannot be won or are still sort of simmering but are not going uh, anywhere fast. Uh, and I think it's striking that in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the Biden administration has uh, approached it in two rather different ways. In Afghanistan, uh, despite uh, many criticisms that this could lead to further problems and difficulties, uh, the Americans have decided to pull out uh, completely. Uh, in Iraq, uh, there is still this attempt, at least, to stay on. Uh, so two very contrasting approaches by the Biden administration uh, in these two legacy conflicts, if you like, uh, and only time will tell uh, which is going to be the correct one. Well, let's bring in uh, Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. M Mike, in one month, Joe Biden has ended the remaining US operations in Afghanistan, now Iraq. Uh, and, and there have been shifts as well in things like some of the, the drone operations in, in Africa. I mean, is he effectively trying to wind up largely America's combat operations around the world? Not around the globe, but in places where he thinks he can't win or America can't win. And remember that, as we've said before on this programme, Joe Biden is a president in a hurry. He's got the midterms coming up at the end of next year, and then he's he'll be he's he'll have one eye on re-election in 2024, and we'll see if he does a second term or uh, steps aside or whatever. But he wants to get unpopular decisions out of the way now. And if his calculation, which I think it is, is that these situations will not get any better in two or three years, then take the pain now and show that you can recover in other ways. So we're going to concentrate on the major strategic issues, which for us are Iran and China. And he wants to be known as somebody who could address those issues rather than be continually sucked into these legacy wars, which he feels at some point you've got to say, leave. You've got to say, you know, whether we won or lost, finish it, get out and do it earlier rather than later. Well, let's talk now about Britain's military power and its biggest warship, HMS Queen Elizabeth's prime role is arguably not actually fighting wars, but instead projecting British power around the world in the hope of avoiding wars. This week, she has sailed through the Malacca Strait to her most anticipated projection of power yet in the South China Sea. It is meant to send a clear message, which has been spelt out by the US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin in a speech in Singapore. Beijing's claim to the vast majority of the South China Sea has no basis in international law. That assertion treads on the sovereignty of the states in the region. They call this a freedom of navigation patrol. Mike Clark, how is China likely to react to this demonstration of freedom of maritime movement? Well, they certainly won't underreact to it. They claim sovereignty over the waters that the SAS group is going to be sailing through. So they will pretend that these are violations of China's sovereignty and that China has got the right to counter them, which means that they will buzz them very hard. They'll, they'll probably maneuver ships close to them. I think they'll create situations which are in maritime terms quite dangerous. And they'll claim that it's all the fault of the, of the British carriers and their American colleagues for putting pressure on the on sovereign waters. Do you think we will see a repeat of what happened with HMS Defender in the Black Sea, for example? 
I would expect something similar, yes. I, I can't believe that China will just sort of monitor it the way the Russians monitor stuff coming up through the, the Barents Straits. They won't just monitor it and sort of stand back. They will try to make their point. And I think it will be a very difficult time. And I think that the carrier group are going to have to really look after themselves. Not, not that anyone will start shooting, but they want to make sure there isn't an incident and that there aren't any sorts of collisions or close shaves in the air or on the uh, on the sea. Jonathan Marcus, is it necessary for this UK-led carrier strike group to do this, or is it actually pretty confrontational to China? No, I don't think it is. Uh, I, mean, I think the, uh, look, uh, freedom of navigation is of crucial importance. Uh, people forget the proportion of uh, world trade that goes by sea. Uh, keeping international access to sea lanes is vital. It's vital for maritime powers, for great trading powers like Britain uh, and its allies. So to that extent, uh, it is important to make these demonstrations, especially uh, in cases like the South China Sea, where uh, governments are making all sorts of uh, undue claims uh, over those waters. So that's important. I think, though, what's interesting is that the U.S. Defense Secretary in that speech that you uh, uh, mentioned there also did seem to raise at least a question, I think, as to whether Britain's resources were best placed in the South China Sea basket, if you like. Let's see what he says. It's a balancing act. Resources are scarce, no matter which country you're talking about. If, for example, we focus a bit more here, are there areas that the UK can be more helpful in other parts of the world? And I have a great relationship with the UK MOD, and these are discussions that we've we've had a, a number of times. I found it interesting that he, he said they've discussed this a number of times. Do you believe that, as the FT reported it, effectively he's telling the UK to largely concentrate on its own backyard, Jonathan? To an extent, yes. I mean, as I say, I think uh, there is uh, widespread support uh, that uh, many governments should show support for freedom of navigation operations, that it isn't just the United States uh, testing out uh, alleged Russian or claimed Russian waters or claimed Chinese waters. And so there has to be a, a, a visible international consensus uh, that these claims have to be challenged. So I think there is a role uh, for the Royal Navy there. But I think also, uh, and I think this really goes to the heart of some much bigger problems, how you define the whole concept of global Britain, uh, what the strategic and defence aspect of that role is going to be. I think there are growing concerns, uh, not just in the United States, but indeed here as well. You know, if you look at the combat strength of the British Army, for example, if you look at the level of its equipment for high intensity warfare, it's a pretty lamentable situation. I don't want to even bring in the uh, tri trials and travails of the Ajax system. And I think that is something that the Americans are concerned about. Because after all, if uh, America uh, is going to be focusing more on China, it needs to be sure that its NATO allies can at least do their business uh, back in Europe. Mike Clark, given the prominence that the Asia-Pacific was given in the announcement of the integrated review, is what Lloyd Austin said going to grate somewhat with the UK government? Yes, it may do because it goes against expectations, but it's really all about where you can make a strategic difference. The fact is that, you know, British task group can be welcome in the Indo-Pacific. Everybody's happy that they're there. They do a good job. 
but it may not make any strategic difference one way or another. Whereas British naval assets in the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean do make a strategic difference. If they're there, that's strategically good. If they're absent, that is strategically negative because Britain is a strategic player in our own neighbourhood. That's the point. And I think that's what Lloyd Austin was saying, is that you know we'd rather you play to your strategic strengths in your own neighbourhood where you make a difference. We can like you being in the Pacific, but you don't make a lot of difference. Now, before we go, let's quickly catch up with plans to build a new national flagship. Please don't call it a royal yacht, says Boris Johnson. Uh, Michael Clark, we learned more about it this week, and the price appears to have jumped by anything up to £100 million. Yes, it was originally touted as a £100 million project. Then it was said that the Treasury would put aside £150 million for it, or would assume it would be £150 million. Now the MOD, as of uh, the Defence Secretary's speech this week, says it could be 200 or even £250 million. So, as always with these projects, the price is increasing, and it may be in the water if the project is successful by 2024-2025. Mike, why is it an MOD project? Well, because... Under World Trade Organization rules, you can't build a ship and say this will only be built in this country, which is what the government has been saying about this national flagship. And the only exception to those free trade rules is if the ship is somehow a warship. And so although this ship, this national flagship, should be being paid for by, let's say, the Department of Business, Energy and Industry or the Department of International Trade, that would make it clear it was a civilian ship. So to make it look like some sort of national security asset, it has to be built uh, under the MOD's auspices. And if it costs 250 million, I think we can guess that the MOD is absolutely thrilled by the idea. Mike Clark, thank you. That is all for this week. Thank you to all of our guests on the programme. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. Kate is back next week. I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening. Goodbye.